Well, we've finally gotten to the end of Numbers chapter 11. I would invite you to turn there. That's where we're going to begin today as we continue on our journey in the wilderness. As we, um, as we do so, let's begin with prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. Help us to learn from these who have gone before us. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, cause your word to cut us to the quick, like a sword dividing between even the bone and the marrow, between soul and spirit. Only you can do this, Lord. Only your spirit can convict us of sin and give us a desire to change. And so we ask that you would do just that. Help us not merely to read your word or to hear your word, but to become doers of your word, transformed from within according to a a renewed mind. Now, Lord, do what you want to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we... um, as we get to Numbers 11, chapter, uh, verse 31 to the end, we've been seeing this build. The, the children of Israel uh, have been at the foot of Mount Sinai for a long time. The Lord has revealed himself to them and given them the law, and he's given them the tabernacle, told them how to order their lives around him. He has given them everything they could ask for, and set them up to win. And finally, in chapter 10, they move out. They begin to march, begin to to continue the journey to the promised land. And immediately, at the very beginning of chapter 11, they're grumbling. They're complaining about their hardships, and the Lord is displeased, and fire breaks out, and they call that place... Tabera, burning, because the fire of the Lord's anger was kindled against them. So, apparently, they're a lot like me, and they learn slow. Because right after this, we read that they begin to grumble and complain because God's not providing for them the way they think they should be provided for. God, we want meat. What's this manna stuff? We're so much better off in Egypt. Oh, Lord. And actually, as I say that, they didn't say, oh, Lord, at least not as a prayer. Maybe they did as as a swear, but not as a prayer. They complained about God, and God was angry. And he told them what, they, what he was going to do, and now in today's passage we read that he does it. Numbers 11, beginning with verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground, about six feet. Three feet, sorry. And the people rose all, all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, about, about 60 bushel. We're talking about a lot. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hata'ava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. This is the word of the Lord. So as we see this, this text... Just to kind of summarize and get it together, we see that God's judgment for their grumbling is poured out here. 
it's, it's, his judgment is poured out as he gives them what they want. But he does it as an expression of judgment and wrath. He brings plague into the middle of their enjoyment of his blessing. And this plague strikes them down. They named the place Graves of the Craving. That's what Kibroth Hata'ava means. Graves of Craving. As a reminder of God's judgment there. Let's take a look at, at how this fits together. So we, we kind of backed up a little bit to look at where we're going. We're going to do that just briefly again to, to see what the Word says. Because following the melodic line of the book and this chapter helps us to rightly understand the actual point of the text. If we want to get it, then we need to see what it is that God's saying in the whole. That's, by the way, one of the dangers of verse-by-verse preaching, is if we do verse-by-verse preaching and we cover every verse of the Bible, but we don't do it in context, if we miss the, the big picture, then it's very easy for us to distort it, and we can start to break down into our own teaching. I'm a big fan of verse-by-verse teaching, but not only verse-by-verse teaching. It has to be more because it wasn't written to be a guidebook or a handbook or everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten, right? We, we need to be able to see the whole picture of the story, and there is a melody that goes through this that guides our understanding of it. So as we, um, as we look at this, turn back to the, or look back to the beginning of the chapter with verse 4. Moses writes, Now the rabble, or the mixed multitude, that was among them, had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. I've been trying to watch what I eat. I understand exactly where they're coming from. You get, you get this hungering for something that you used to have, that you wanted to have, and, and maybe you didn't even know how much you missed it until you didn't have it, right? They're struggling. They're longing for the good old days, verse, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 6. But now our strength is dried up. Poor me. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Jump down to verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of their tent. I mean, this is such a big deal. Okay. The, the, the weeping, the, the, this, this is a picture of grieving, being overwhelmed because I don't have what I want to have. God's giving me something else. And they're weeping as families at the doors of their tents. everyone's weeping there the anger of the Lord blazed hotly and Moses was displeased then we see Moses complaint we dealt with that the last few weeks Moses unlike the people complained to the Lord while they complained about the Lord and then the Lord responds to Moses a little farther down here if you get down to uh, verse 16 Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather uh, the seventy men and elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will make some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, or I'll take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Okay, so that's how God responds to Moses complaining to God. He brings him help, and we've developed that already. But notice what he says in verse 18. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. I'm going to give you what you want. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, not to the Lord, but in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? Right there, we already have a problem. They're seeing a need for provision outside of God. Who's going to take care of us? Who's going to give us meat? Surely God's not doing it. Whether he's too small or doesn't care about us, we can't count on God 
to come through for us. We need meat. Where are we going to get it? Who will give us meat? Consecrate yourselves. I'm bringing you meat. For it was better for us in Egypt. It was better when God wasn't involved and we were slaves back in the old world, back where we were before. Therefore, the the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days. I feel like the intensity, as the Lord is saying this to Moses, is, is amping up with each one, right? He's repeating it for emphasis. He's telling them. He could just say you're going to get a lot of meat. So much is going to come out your nose. But he goes to great lengths to emphasize this and let this tension build. But a whole month until it comes out at your nostrils, it becomes loathsome to you. Because you've rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? You might say they were deconstructing here. They decided that the path they had chosen, which they didn't choose, God chose them, but in following God, it wasn't as good as they were hoping it would be. God's promise is out there, but they're impatient. They want what they want. It's like J.G. Wentworth. It's my money and I want it now, right? I I want it now. I don't want to wait. I don't want to endure. I don't want to persevere. And in rejecting God's provision, you know they're rejecting God. Moses now <laughs> responds to the Lord. It's, it's kind of funny. I don't know if it's really funny, but it's kind of funny to me. I lost my place. Give me just a second. Let me catch up here. Okay, so uh, <laughs> uh, verse 21. But Moses said, The people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot. You've said, I'll give them meat, that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. This is why, this this statement from Moses is why I think, and, and this is, take it for what it's worth, this is my understanding of it. I think Moses is recording, even in the fact that he's complaining to the Lord, there is some sinful element to his attitude here. Because if not, why would Moses now be questioning the Lord's ability to do what he said? He's not questioned the Lord before. When God said, go to the sea, I'm going to split it open, he just did it. And now he's like, okay, God, this is too big a job. How in the world is this going to happen? And the Lord, if you will, essentially raises his proverbial eyebrow and says, child, please. And Moses is like, okay, all right, I get it. Sorry, I I stepped out of line. Kind of like Job, I spoke about things I, I didn't understand. And he goes and he tells the people. Notice that God tells them to consecrate themselves. That that means to to set themselves apart, to purify themselves as if to approach and worship. They're about to be judged. They're about to receive a gift that is a really more of a curse than a blessing. And God says, you need to prepare your hearts. Consecrate yourselves. It's one of the interesting things here. You don't want to get in a habit of arguing from silence, and and I don't want to do that now either. But do you notice that in all the things going up to chapter 10, when God told them to do something, we see this phrase, and they did just, they did all that the Lord had commanded Moses? That's conspicuously absent here. I suspect, and this is, again, take it for what it's worth, it's not in the text, but little sanctified imagination here. I, I think that they either did not consecrate themselves as they should have, or they went through the motions of consecrating themselves. They did the religious ritual, but their hearts didn't change. How do we know their hearts didn't change? 
Well, because the Lord tells us over and over again that when we repent, He forgives. We see it. It's this, it's this pattern. But He doesn't forgive them. He brings judgment, as we're going to see as we go along here. All right. Getting off script and freelancing, let's get, let's get down to this. Why was God so upset that they wanted meat? You need, you need to ask yourself questions like this. Why was this such a big deal? Understand, it wasn't that they wanted meat. God had already done this very thing when they first came out of, of Egypt, back in Exodus they come out, they get through the Red Sea, and God gives them manna. The first time they've seen it, they're like, what is it? Oh, let's call it, what is it? That's what manna sounds like, right? And he gives them, without them even requesting, meat from quail brought in by a wind, just like here. God has already done this. And he provided water from a rock. When they were distraught, they complained, Lord, why'd you bring us out of Egypt if you're just going to kill us here? We don't have any water. And he brings water to feed these incredible multitudes from rocks. So in the pictures that you get, like in in, uh, Ten Commandments, and you see the rock and the water gushes out, this is like a river starts coming out of this. So when we're talking about the rock, don't don't picture a rock like you might have in your garden, but, but more like you know, tapping the side of the Grand Canyon and a river gushes out. That's more the picture we should have in our minds. God has proven himself time and time again to be more than enough to meet all their needs, to give them more than they even thought to ask for. When they left Egypt, in case you forgot, God put it in the hearts of the Egyptians to come and give them their stuff. Hey, slaves, as you're leaving, why don't you take our gold and our silver and our, all of our valuables? What, here, take this with you. God did that. They didn't do it. They didn't go and negotiate a settlement. They didn't, that was not how this was working. But now they get out here and who's going to provide meat for us? Why was God so upset that they asked for meat? Because they were craving something that was not theirs to crave. They were not trusting him. They wanted to do things their way. They wanted what they wanted when they wanted it. That over-desire or misplaced desire, we call it craving here. Elsewhere we call it lust. That desire from our urges to want that thing. I have to have that. And we become obsessed with it. In the New Testament, we call that sort of craving the lust of the flesh. So God is upset with the lust of the flesh in them. In craving these things, they rejected God. They found themselves with misplaced, disordered desires. God's righteous anger is toward their disordered desires, craving what was not theirs to have. And his anger for us today is the same. When we crave, when we desire what is not ours to have, these kinds of desires denigrate God's character. They elevate ourselves to the throne. I'm in charge. They display ungratefulness. And they ultimately make an idol of what God gives us. They worship the creation at the expense of the Creator. And in this wickedness of placing God's creation above the one who created it, of being ungrateful toward God and demanding something else or receiving from God without gratitude toward Him. Now, don't forget, these are the people of God. They're still doing, they still have the tabernacle, they still have the rituals. But their hearts are far from it. They're not thinking about God. They're thinking about their stuff, their comfort, their desires, meeting their own 
pleasures and urges. Not, not God's way, but their way. Doing this suppresses the truth. Suppresses the truth of who God is. What He's like. And who we are in light of that. Cravings, urges, sin nature, hardened hearts. Flesh desires. Our flesh, as we read earlier in Romans 8, desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And here we see the consequences of their choices. I haven't reminded you of this in a while, but our choices determine our destiny. Choices always have consequences. And the the cravings of our flesh, the lust of the flesh, values my personal choice, my free will, my desires, my identity over God. And when I choose something other than God, as we see today, that's what I get. But what I lose is Him. And that's everything. A couple weeks ago when we, when we looked at this passage that, that we just read or looked at, we saw that the heart, the heart that delights in the Lord will be fully satisfied in Him. The people were not satisfied in the Lord and therefore they craved other things. They did not delight in Him. They found the normal or the worldly way of living more appealing, more satisfying than the self-sacrifice of trusting God completely. We want to go back to Egypt where we were slaves because it was better there rather than trusting God to do what He said. The cravings of the flesh distract us from God's faithfulness. They distort our view of reality and they diminish our gratitude. So I want to ask you, and I want you to ask yourself, what cravings of the flesh do I deal with? I, I can't answer this for you. You have to answer it for yourself. What, what cravings of the flesh, what lusts of the flesh do I deal with? Now when I say lust, I, I want you to plug in that, that word craving, longing, yearning. Because we have a tendency when we talk about lust to just think of, of the sexually immoral aspects. But that's only part of it. It's any misplaced or disordered desire. When I have a desire outside of where I'm supposed to find my satisfaction and fulfillment, it's the lust of the flesh. What do I desire? What do I crave? Where does that desire come from? Is it my flesh? Do we justify our disordered desires according to human logic? According to the flesh, our own understanding. That's what human logic is. It's the flesh. It's the sinful nature. It's trusting my own wisdom instead of God's wisdom. Well, this makes sense to me. We're in an enlightened world now. Surely the Bible can't be taken literally because, you know, we know more stuff now. Sociologists say, and we throw away what God says. Instead of trusting in Him with our whole heart, as the proverb tells us, we lean on our own understanding. And in so doing, we fail to acknowledge and submit to Him. And in failing to acknowledge and submit to Him, we choose to direct our own paths. This is a moral relativism. It's the nature of of disordered desires to deliver death. They promise great things, and yet what they deliver is a separation from God. When I want what I want, when God says this, and I choose something else, when God says, I created them male and female, and I think I get to decide whether I'm male or female, it's a disordered desire. I'm putting myself on the throne. God made a mistake. I got to fix it. When God says, 
that he created the male and female, and they are to marry one man and one woman for life. But God doesn't really understand my situation. If he did, then he'd understand why I have to leave my husband, why I have to leave my wife and find a different partner. He would understand that, well, I can't help it. I'm just attracted to somebody else. And I deserve to be happy. That's one of the devil's best lies. I deserve to be happy. Not only do I deserve to be happy, but my partner deserves to be happy. And if I'm happy, I'm going to be better for them. You wouldn't want us to have an unhappy home, would you? God wouldn't ask me to stay in such terrible circumstances. And so what's clear and black and white on the page gets left out. Because we want what we want when we want it. Oh, I can't help it. I'm I'm attracted to this person of the same sex. I was just born that way. But God says that those who offend in this way cannot be a part of the kingdom of heaven. God calls homosexual activity... Don't misunderstand. Attraction is a disordered desire. Acting on it is what's condemned. God says this is an abomination. It's an unnatural desire. But I want what I want, so God must be wrong. Now, you wouldn't say that, right? You wouldn't say God must be wrong, but that's what your actions say. That's what your attitudes say. When we choose these disordered desires over the clear instruction of the word. I didn't want to spend quite so much time here, so I want to move on. But we need to be looking not at those other people's sins. That person across the aisle or the person sitting next to you. The person in your home that is with you. I need to be looking in the mirror. What are my cravings of the flesh? Maybe it's to eat too much or to drink too much or to spend my time watching too much sports. I I love the Bears and the Packers and, you know, as a game, not the Packers. Don't get me wrong. Don't blaspheme in the pulpit here. So uh, I, I love watching football and that can become an idol very quickly if I let it. How about my job? I find satisfaction in a career. I find satisfaction in a job. I find satisfaction in being able to make a good living and provide for my family and have a nice car and a nice house. Is that a desire that is coming from my flesh or from the Spirit? I have to wrestle with these things. It doesn't mean don't get a good job or <clears throat> you should you know, go by the the worst old used Yugo you can find, that, that's not what we're talking about. Six of you remember Yugos. But my desires need to be driven by the Spirit of God in me, the Spirit of Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And when it's in conflict with what God tells me, I need to kill it. I need to crucify it. I need to stop indulging that craving and surrender it to the Lord. It's as simple as that. That doesn't mean it's easy. If it were easy, everybody would do it. It's not. It's not easy for anyone. The prodigal son had one sin. The older brother had another. But they're both sins. All right, let's press on. what cravings of the flesh do I deal with? If we're going to be looking at at this idea, uh, we need to go back to Romans and look at Romans 1. Romans 1 addresses the need for the gospel, the need for Jesus to step into time to shatter our yoke of slavery to sin. 
And when Paul addresses this in, in Romans 1, 16 uh, and following, we're going to really look at 18 and following, but he, he starts with this idea that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because it's the power of God to salvation. You're not going to have a relationship with God or get saved or be forgiven or get to heaven by cleaning up your act and trying to act better. By, well, let me, let me go see a counselor and have a better marriage. Let me get this book and see if I can, uh, you know, do better. Let me join this group and, and stop uh, drinking or smoking or whatever it is that's dragging me down. All of those things have their place, but they're focused on small things. We need a resurrection. We need to die to self and be raised up in Him. Hopefully that gave you enough time to get to Romans 1. We're going to really tune in at verse 18, but I'm going to read for you what I just quoted. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. We all know that there's a God. We have to talk ourselves out of it. We have to convince ourselves to be atheists. And you, you can argue, you can debate it all you want, but the reason that we argue it is because we have an innate understanding that there is a God. And we see His qualities and character around us, even before we open the Scriptures to see His heart and His will. For His invisible attributes, verse 20, Namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Notice this. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Before we continue, let's just stop. You've got to recognize that this is exactly what's happening in Numbers 11. And it's exactly what happens to us today when we allow our desires for things or for comfort or for our own agenda to push down the truth of who God is. It distorts the reality that God is big. He is other. He is holy and he has expectations of his creation. And when we elevate created things above the creator, we are suppressing the truth. And Paul calls that wickedness. We're denying the righteous Lord. In in doing this, we question his character, just like they did. Is God good enough and big enough to meet our needs? Well, you know, I feel unfulfilled. Therefore, I think I need to deconstruct my faith because clearly it's not working for me. As if God commanded us to follow him as long as it's working for us. That's not how it works. Adam and Eve were following God until it didn't work for them. And then they did, as they interacted with the servant, the same thing that we're seeing here in Romans 1, the same thing that we're seeing in Numbers 11, the same thing that happens in your heart and my heart and the heart of the people around us every single day. Something other than what God said, seems better. And because I'm in charge, I choose that. I make an idol of it. And I begin to worship, if you will, not 
religiously. They, they have it clear and obvious and bowing down to idols in ancient times. We're a little more subtle because we're sophisticated, right? We're enlightened. But we put things in God's place. And the number one biggest idol that we put in God's place is the person in the mirror. Our understanding, rather than trusting Him with our whole heart. Let's press on. Because of this, we see his, God's response to this in verse 24 and following. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, the cravings of the flesh, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. You want it? All right, you got it. And all that goes with it. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. I'm not going to spend time on this, but I just want to point out what he's saying here about the unnatural heterosexual sin is just as sinful as homosexual sin. But one is natural and one is unnatural. One is according to the created order and one is in rebellion against the created order. They're both sins. So don't start pointing fingers at somebody else's sin because it has a different color or flavor than yours. Right? When we start doing our thing our way, we are sinning against God. All right, back to the text. He gave them up gave them up to their dishonorable passions, to do their thing. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, in verse 27, and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. In other words, sin is its own punishment. You get what you choose. You can have your sin, or you can have God. But you can't have both. By choosing to follow our own passions, we receive in ourselves the due penalty for our error. And God hands us over to these things. Uh, Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You might, your translation might say a depraved mind or a corrupted mind. In other words, as he gives them over to the, the thing that they want. If you want it, go ahead. You got it. Have your way. I'm, I'm going to give you your way. And as you do this, and you might remember the Disney's Aladdin, right? You know, when, when Jafar is going to become an all-powerful genie. Okay? You can have that. And all that comes with it, phenomenal cosmic power, you all know what comes next, right? Itty-bitty living space. Choices have consequences, and our choices determine our destiny. If you're going to choose sin, you don't get God. And God says, okay, here it is. I don't think you're going to like it, but go ahead. And he gives us over to a debased mind. In other words, we no longer are able to discern right from wrong. Isn't that what we see in our nation today? Isn't that what we're seeing in the church at large today? Pastors in pulpits afraid to talk about the Word of God. It's not new, by the way. It's been going on as long as the church has been around. And it was going on in Israel before. There is a reality. And that's our core reality today. That God's judgment often comes by letting us have our way. God's judgment often comes by letting us have our way. You see there at verse 28, our memory verse. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Then he describes that they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, 
covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Boy, we've invented lots of ways of evil today. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is a picture of a world without God. It's a picture of a life getting to do what it wants instead of what God wants. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I'd love to preach that verse, and I'm going to not do that today. God's judgment often comes by letting us have our way. Getting the wickedness we desire is its own punishment. And we need to understand that sometimes getting what we want is not God's blessing, but rather God's judgment. When my desire is not God's design, His acquiescence is my demise. Okay, that sounded weird. Let me say it again so you can catch it. When my desire is not God's design, His acquiescence, when He gives in to my desires, is my demise. All right. That was the long part, the setup. Let's try to jump through the rest of this. Notice this. God's judgment is rooted in God's character. God's judgment is rooted in God's character. When we're, when we're in Numbers 11, we see verse 31. You see that God is displaying His character here. Right? The, the question was, who's going to give us meat? Even Moses is like, Lord, really? This is a big job. And the Lord's like, hold my fago. Here we go. Right? God's judgment is rooted in his character. Notice uh, verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. Now, now check it out, in case you're just reading through this. Take into your brain what this is saying. About a day's journey, on foot, by the way, they don't have cars. About a, a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp. So, in other words, everywhere you go, you got quail, right? There's all kinds of quail. Crazy, insane amount of quail. About two cubits above the ground. So, whether, it's, whether they're stacked up, you know, three feet above the ground, or whether they just, because they, they're low-flying birds, they're ground-dwelling birds, they're flying three feet above the ground, it doesn't really matter. The point is, God is proving to them. He's demonstrating in giving them what they want that he's able to abundantly supply more than they ever dreamed of. Oh, we wish we had meat. You can't even count these things. You have no idea how much meat I can bring in. Who will get meat for us? Lord, how could you possibly do this? Okay, I already did it. It might remind you of something that Jesus demonstrated when he fed 5,000 people and then fed another 4,000 people and did it with a couple of sandwiches, right? Just split it up, ends up with 12 basketfuls left over. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That's bad math. Or it's God math because that's what happens when you get outside of natural law and have a miraculous sign. God was demonstrating to the people that Christ is himself God and is able to do what only God can do. What can God do? Abundantly supply all your needs according to His riches and glory. God is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. Like bringing in more quail than two, two million people can eat. Now notice, as you are looking at this, God's judgment is rooted in God's character. The Lord sent this wind bringing quail from the sea for, for all this stuff, right? Their grumbling impugned God's character. That's the nature of it. Was he unable to provide? Was he uncaring or capricious like the imagined gods of the pagans? It called into question his goodness and his greatness. And God, right here in verse, verse 31, blows up the argument. Here's the thing. I do the same thing with my grumbling. With my complaining, 
with my resistance to the hardships and self-sacrifice His glory requires of me. Whenever my flesh craves something other than what God calls me to, that desire distorts and suppresses the truth about who God is. I must take it captive and make those thoughts conform to Christ, whatever they may be. So ask yourself, and I, when I say ask yourself, it's not rhetorical. Ask yourself. Find the answer. Don't quit until you do. How do the desires of my flesh suppress and distort the truth about God's character? In your own life, what desires do you have that are distorting and suppressing the truth about God's character? God's giving them what they crave, giving them their own way, and doing it in such a way as to demonstrate that if they had trusted Him, He could have provided not only more, but better than they could have dreamed. God's character is unimpeachable. His glory will be revealed, whether through His blessing, because we trust Him and obey, or through His judgment, because we want it another way. Notice this. Not only is God's judgment rooted in God's character, in verse 32 we see that the wicked value the gift over the giver. The wicked value the gift over the giver, the, the provision over the provider. The sinful heart takes without gratitude. The wicked receive gifts without thankfulness. Notice in verse 32, And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Can't you just picture it? Man, we've been craving this quail. We're weeping at our tents. Wow, quail all over the place. It's Christmas morning. And they're jumping into this like kids ripping into their stockings, right? Oh my goodness, I can't believe how awesome this is. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers. When they, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. So here's what's going on. They're, they're going out, they're collecting, they're receiving, they're getting the gift, they're, they're getting the hustle to go out and get it. They're, they're working hard, collecting no less than 60 bushels of meat here. Okay, I don't know how they're planted, if they're, they're going to dry it out, maybe that's why they're spreading it around the camp. Because they don't have refrigeration, you know, they, they can't vacuum seal it, they don't have an air fryer or anything like that. So they're, they're, they're spreading them out, maybe to dry the meat after they uh, have slaughtered them. They're excited. But do you see any mention of them praising God? Do you see any mention of them saying, oh, wait a minute, um... We were complaining about God as if he couldn't do this or wouldn't do this, and now he's done it. Uh, I need to repent. My heart is wrong. The people rose and gathered all that day and the next day. They were hustling. They were doing the work. They focused on the gift, and they were so busy hustling to get what they think they have coming to them, what they deserve, what they what they crave, that they aren't even paying attention to the truth that this so-called blessing is actually God turning them over to their own wicked desires, to a debased mind, to do what ought not be done. It's God's judgment, not His blessing. There's no mention of repentance, self-reflection, gratitude. The people don't acknowledge the Lord saying, Oh, Lord, You've given us more than we deserve. We were wrong to ever doubt you or to want our own way. Please forgive us. Help us to trust in you with all our hearts instead of leaning on our own understanding. You know, if they had done this, if they'd had any bit of self-reflection, of introspection, to look into their own hard hearts and selfishness, the Lord would have forgiven them. And then they could have had this as a true blessing. When God gives blessings, His blessings are good. They are perfect. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. He doesn't give bad gifts. But instead, they did their thing, and they valued the things of the flesh over their Creator. Don't we do the same things? 
The fact that any one of us isn't already in hell is only God's grace. Man, he sounds like a fire and brimstone preacher. I'm just telling you the truth. I don't deserve to be standing here taking in breath. I'm a sinner. And that's not a small thing. I deserve right now to be in hell. And the only reason that I can stand here and breathe and see your beautiful faces is because Jesus Christ died for my sin. He became my sin so that I could become God's righteousness. And yet, we think we deserve something. We deserve to be happy. Understand that God doesn't have to let you live or breathe or have a family or a job or enjoy the sunset or enjoy the taste of food. I don't deserve to be comfortable and happy and watch football and have friends or have time to myself. I don't deserve any of this. All of these things are gifts from God. Yet we value these blessings at the expense of true gratitude to the one who gave them. Thankfulness is expressed in action. Faith is expressed in obedience. Do you really think the one who knows our thoughts and motives better than we do is impressed by my lip service words of thanks or songs of praise when my actions demonstrate clearly who calls the shot in my life? Ask yourself, how do my actions and attitudes display thankfulness to God? If I'm giving thankfulness to God on my terms, I'm not giving thankfulness to God. Am I telling myself I'm thankful while doing just what I please with my life, my time, my money, my relationships? If so, then I'm acting just like the Israelites here and the wicked people described in Romans 1. Ask the Holy Spirit to show where you need to change in order to demonstrate true faithfulness. He will. Next point. God may delay his action, but he will not neglect his justice. God may delay his action, but he will not neglect his justice. Look at verse 33. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Did you notice here that God has already said, from his tone and the way he approached it when he's telling Moses, consecrate them, they're going to eat meat until it's coming out their stinking nostrils. I might have added a little flavor to it. But this, that's clearly the tone, is it not? That, that's not made up. God is angry. His anger is against them. I'm going to give them what they want. See how they like it. And yet, he delays striking them down. This fits the pattern that God continuously gives that if we will just repent, then he will relent from his judgment and anger, his righteous wrath against sinners. Isn't that what Peter says in his letter? People think it's, you know, oh my gosh, it's so long. The Lord's never coming back because nothing's really changed. He's like, don't be confused. God's not slow in keeping his promises. When he says he's coming back, he's coming back. But understand that when he comes back, when, when Jesus returns, then the curtain falls and it's over. Then there's no more chance for salvation. And the reason he delays is because he's patient with you and he wants people to come to Christ. Why are you not in hell right now? Patience and grace. Don't presume upon it. Don't think that you have another day left to get right. You don't know. The meat might be still in your mouth and not even consumed when God's anger, His wrath is kindled up. It's coming. He already says it's coming. He knows it's coming. And He's delaying because He's patient with us not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. They don't. And God's justice is sure. Do we really think that we're different? 
Do we think somehow that because we go to church or, or we live in America or we're evangelicals or, or whatever, do we really think that God's going to just give us a pass when we decide, well, you know, I, I'm not complaining about manna, right? I'm not begging God to, to bring in meat. No, but I'm doing my thing my way. And I'm disregarding what God says. How many of us have given serious consideration to what the Sabbath means? Is it a real thing? Is God actually just kidding? Was it just for Israel? Is it for us? Most of us haven't even thought about it because it's not normal for us. And we follow the culture more than the word. That's another sermon, but, but the, the point being, it's really easy for us to look at these folks or those folks as being the wicked ones. But if we're not willing to look inside and we presume upon God's mercy, thinking we've got time, it's, it's all good. I'm going to live how I want now and eventually I'm going to give myself to the Lord or eventually I'll, I'll do something about it. You don't know how much time you've got left. Take advantage of the offer that he gives you. He may delay his action, but he won't neglect his justice. Much more to say, but I'm going to jump ahead here. His patience in giving us a long leash, a lot of rope, should not cause us to think the Lord thinks little of our flesh-driven cravings, our selfishness, or our hardening heart. He will not tolerate anything in us that becomes a rival for His righteous rule in our lives. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, but if we continue to shut out His voice and justify our sin, the Lord will let us have our way. And this is an act of judgment. Ask yourself, am I living a lifestyle of repentance? Or am I living presumptuously? It's easy to presume upon God's patience and grace but this shows that we are not rightly understanding at all either His holiness or grace. Last point. God's people must never forget God's judgment. God's people must never forget God's judgment. Notice verse 34 and, uh, and 35 really is the, the end of the scene as it transitions here. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava, Graves of the Craving, because there they buried the people who had the craving. They buried the people who had the craving, the lust of the flesh. Then they went from there and stayed at Hazaroth, and we'll pick up the story at Hazaroth later. They memorialized the event by naming the place Graves of the Craving, because we must never forget God's judgments. When we forget God's judgments, when we forget His wrath against sin, we lose sight of His character. We cheapen grace. We drift back, back into the complacent kind of comfortable religion that we so often condemn in others. We start to treat comfortable sins or attitudes lightly. You know, the baby dragons. They're still cute. They haven't consumed us yet. And we coddle them in our lives. We begin to think like who we used to be, lusting after the things we used to think would satisfy us. So we wrap this up. Ask yourself and find a way how can I actively remind myself that indulging the flesh is no small thing? I think it's one of the great and pervasive sins of the modern church for us to think that there are no rules. All bets are off. Jesus came, right? It's the gospel. We don't live in the age of the law. We live in the age of the gospel. So you can do whatever we want. But the New Testament tells us we can't do whatever we want. Because what we want according to the flesh is contrary to what we want according to the Spirit. And if I forget that God has hatred for sin, 
As we read in Romans, those who do these things deserve to die. Some have abused that and said, well, this is about homosexuals deserve to die. Man, it's about sinners deserve to die. Everybody. It doesn't matter what stripe your sin is. When we choose our thing rather than God's thing, when we presume upon His mercy and grace, we deserve death. Man, that preacher is such a downer. Guys, if I didn't tell you the truth, I wouldn't love you. If I didn't step on your toes, I wouldn't care about you. But I do. And the Lord does. And He is long-suffering and patient with us. And He gives us every opportunity. The fact that you're sitting here hearing this message today, it's no great privilege to hear me talk. You can hear me talk anytime I talk a lot, right? And it's really not anything worth hearing. But hearing God's Word, as God is telling you, that sometimes His judgment comes when you get what you want. He gives you your way, and that's judgment. Getting our wicked desires is its own punishment. This is God's grace to us. This is God's patience and His blessing. The good news is that the gospel that Paul's not ashamed of is the power to go beyond this natural state that we see in chapter 1. Let me close with this thought from chapter 3. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. I'll give you a second to get there. The bad news is we deserve for God to turn us loose, to turn us over to a debased mind, to do the things that we want to do in the flesh but ought not to be done. The good news is that God has provided a way for us. Look at um, 3, starting with verse 21. The numbers are really tiny in the Bible. So I've got to get a bigger one. Here's what Paul writes. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He's saying the law and the prophets are telling us about this. They're pointing in this direction. But he's already established that we can't keep the law. It's been weakened in the flesh, as we'll see in chapter 8. We read that earlier, right? The law is not going to get us right. It's weakened by our weakness, by our sinfulness, by our flesh. But now, in the gospel, we find that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's interesting in this particular case, so often he says no distinction between Jew and Gentile, and that's what he has in mind here. That's the distinction that they're dealing with. But I think it's interesting that it doesn't actually say that in this particular sentence. Because there's no distinction between your sin and my sin and his sin and her sin. It doesn't matter what your sin looks like, if it's a respectable sin, or if it's the most heinous sin you can think of. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news comes next. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. If you have an NIV, it probably says a sacrifice of atonement. What it means is a sacrifice that takes the place and appeases the righteous wrath of God. As His anger is kindled against the people, this is the sacrifice that, if you will, consumes His anger. He doesn't just look past it and just wipe it away, but there is an atoning payment made whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness 
because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He delayed his action. He did not neglect his justice. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in keeping his holiness intact and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one, uh, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only and not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, also of Gentiles, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And that's what we get in Romans 8. Because of Christ, because of, because of what He did on the cross, His work, not our faith, His grace, there's no condemnation for those who receive that grace by faith. Right? I put my faith in Him. My faith doesn't save me. It's the unwrapping of the gift that He's already paid for. And now... What the law couldn't do because it was weakened by my flesh, the Spirit of Christ in me does. He keeps the law that I can't keep. He changes my desires. He makes me aware. He deals with my debased, depraved mind so that now, for the first time, I'm able to please God. Because when He looks at me, He sees Christ. With that, I just want to remind you that God's judgment often comes by letting us have our way. Let's choose His way instead. Father, as we close out our service today, we've heard many things. I pray that you would protect us from those things that are my opinion or human opinion in any form. There's nothing said by me or anyone else that is going to be helpful if it isn't rooted and grounded in your word. So protect us from the voice of the evil one who wants to deceive and distract and discourage us. Protect us from the hardness of our own hearts as we reject the promptings of your Holy Spirit. And Father, keep us from wanting that which is not ours to want. We pray these things in the one who is enough your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.